Our scripture reading this morning was all about paying attention to Jesus. And I want to talk about that this morning. Um, So Daniel H. Pink. Daniel H. Pink wrote a book called Drive. Drive. And it's a book that one of you recommended to me. And I kind of was captured by it. It's a book about... Uh, how to mo- how, what, what motivates people. It's a book about why people do what they do. And in his book are two questions that have really resonated with me. Um, and I want to talk about these two questions this morning. Question number one, what's your sentence? What's your sentence? Um, the question comes from Claire Booth, Luce, who in 1962 was one of the first women to serve in our Congress, and uh, she offered some advice to President John F. Kennedy. She said, President Kennedy, a great man is a sentence. A great man is a sentence. She said, Abraham Lincoln's sentence was, he preserved the union and freed the slaves. Franklin Roosevelt's sentence was he lifted us out of a great depression and helped us win a world war. A great man is a sentence. So she said that to him because she was afraid that um, Kennedy's attention would become so splintered um, from all of the different competing priorities that his sentence would just be kind of become a muddled paragraph. So she wanted him to focus. A great man is a sentence. And I thought about that saying, uh, especially in preparation for today's message about John the Baptist. John the Baptist. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the Gospel of John. That's the fourth book in the New Testament. And I want us to look first at John chapter 1. You'll find that on page 886 of your church Bibles. So turn to the Gospel of John, and we're going to learn about John the Baptist. And by the way, so the Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, one of the twelve. And today we're going to be looking at John the Baptist. John the Baptist. Well, who's he? Well, that's what I want us to learn about, this unique and bizarre person, John the Baptist. What's he doing in Advent anyway? It's a guy like John showing up in in the Christmas story, Uh, especially, you know, the way he looks. Matthew 3, 4 tells us that John wore this garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So he ate bugs with wild honey, lots and lots and lots of honey he had with his bugs. John was this wild man, this holy man. And we're not so sure about John, Uh, you know, because he kind of, um, he kind of assaults our niceties around Christmas, right? We got nice trees, nice lights, nice piano, nice ornaments, nice parties. Can you picture John the Baptist at one of your company Christmas parties, right? Decked out in camel hair and leather accessories, locust breath. I mean, really, And then, you know, all he says when you talk to him is, repent. Repent. That's all he says. What's your name? Repent. How long have you been here? Repent. That's it. That's it. What's he doing here in Advent Scripture? A great man is 
a sentence. What's his sentence? He's obviously an important person. Because you see, John's gospel begins with the beautiful line, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Rapturous verse that takes you to the very throne of heaven to see God the Son. And then suddenly, in verse 6, do you see it? We're interrupted. The flow of thoughts interrupted. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And verses 7 and 8 talk about him. We heard that in our Advent reading. And then verse 9 gets us back on track with the word, with Jesus, the true light coming to the world. And we're raptured with that vision of Jesus coming into the world. And then verse 15, we kind of take the off-ramp again. You see that? Squirrel could have, you know... There's a John bore witness about him. What's going on? You know, clearly, verses 6 through 8 and verse 15, verses 6 through 8 and verse 15 could have waited, you know, could have waited till around, you know, verse 19 and following, but they didn't ask me. But why is it that he's here? This gospel that intentionally omits angels and shepherds and manger scene and wise men John the Baptist is here, though. Why? And I think it has to do with the one sentence that defines his life. And so I kind of set myself out on a little mission to try to figure out what that sentence was. What is that sentence that defines his life? And, and so I kept reading John chapter 1 and, and wanted to figure out what that sentence was. And then I got to around verse 20. And that's why I thought, there's his sentence. There's his sentence. That's why he's here. That's, this is his one sentence. And, and to set up verse 20, uh, John was out in the wilderness preaching and, and, and baptizing. And then a delegation from Jerusalem was sent to, to scout who he was and what he was about. And so verse 19 says that the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And here it is, verse 20. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed. Here it is. Here's his one sentence. I am not the Christ. There. That's his sentence. I am not the Christ. Who are you? I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Now, now there's a backstory to that sentence. And you need to know this backstory. The backstory uh, is actually found in Luke's gospel, chapters 1 through 3. Uh, as we heard in our Advent reading, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was a Levite priest. And... When it was Zechariah's turn to serve in the temple at Jerusalem, which was a privilege, Zechariah was visited by an angel who informed Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth, though past the age of childbearing, they would come together and she would be with child and God would graciously provide. And the angel said that the son's name would be John. And he would turn many to the Lord. And Elizabeth became pregnant. Now, it was not the virgin birth like Mary, but a medical miracle nonetheless. And speaking of Mary, Elizabeth, Mary, Jesus' mother, Elizabeth and Mary were actually relatives. And these ladies were pregnant at the same time. And Elizabeth was about six months further along. And Scripture says that when Mary and Elizabeth saw each other, 
Elizabeth's baby leaped for joy in her womb, which is a clue to John's destiny. And at John's birth, Zechariah prophesied about John's destiny. Zechariah said that before the coming of the promised anointed one, the holy one, before the coming of the Christ, before the king of the universe arrives to reclaim this lost, broken world, there would be a witness. And this witness would go before the coming Christ. And his whole purpose was behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His whole purpose would be to divert all of our attention and focus upon the the promised Messiah. Pay attention to him wherever your eyes are. Get them on Jesus. That was was his sole purpose in life. And that's why in uh, Luke 1, verses 76 to 79, Zechariah sings this song over his baby son, John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's your destiny, son. Now, I can't leave that scripture without noting. Parents, moms and dads, there is something significant and important about a parent prophesying. Yes, I'll use that word. Prophesying, celebrating, singing over the future of their children. Parents who have been blessed with the understanding that their child has a God-inspired destiny. Parents who get it, that their child belongs to the Most High, that their child has a sentence. John's sentence was tied to the coming of the Christ. And so when we get to verse 20, it's just natural, right? See, John knows who he is, and he knows who he's not. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. Someone has called it the the great knot of our Christian witness. Not the Christ. In fact, John, you know, we hear of several phrases that speak of I am not, right? I'm not the light, verse 8. I'm not the Christ, verse 20. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet like unto Moses. I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. So the slave in the household, the lowest slave's responsibility in the household was to to handle the footwear. And John says, I'm not even at that level for this king. I'm not the Christ. You know, there's a lot of peace in confessing that sentence, you know? I am not the Christ. I think we should do that together here. Just say that on three. One, two, three. I am not the Christ. Now, I I want you to say it like you believe it. (laughs) So let's say it one more time. I am not the Christ. Whisper it now. 
I am not the Christ. I'm not the Christ. I can't fix everything. I cannot die for your sins. I cannot read your Bible for you. I can't change other people. I would love to be able to change other people. But I can't. I can't control how other people respond. I cannot be responsible for other people's moods. I cannot be responsible for other people's moods. I cannot keep anyone from getting upset. I can't. I, I, cannot, I cannot keep anyone from withdrawing emotionally. See? I'm not the Christ. Now, we are to be witnesses. <laughs> That's clear from chapter 1. Look at verse 7, verse 8, verse 15, verse 32, verse 34. I mean, the word witness just shows up multiple times in John 1. We are to be witnesses. We are to testify to the facts of Christ's presence in and through our lives. Faith comes by hearing the word of God from a witness. But beware of the witness who makes too much of himself or herself. Beware of the witness who needs attention for himself or herself. Beware, beware in my business, beware of the preacher who constantly puts himself in a good light and returns again and again to his ministry and his achievements. Beware of the preacher's subtle preoccupation with himself even when he speaks of his own flaws. Beware of your own bent to love the praise of people. I'm not the Christ. Verse 20, there it is. It's got to be the sentence for, for John the Baptist or John the witness as we read in these verses. And I thought, well, that's the sentence. Well, that's going to be the sermon and perhaps this week we will have a mercifully short sermon. And, um, but I was wrong. I mean, think about it for a minute. I mean, mean, is it a good sentence if all the sentence says is who you're not? So I kept reading John 1. I kept reading. And and this delegation said, okay, well, we know who you're not. Well, but who are you? Verse 22. And we need an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourselves? And then John said this. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Make straight the way of the Lord. There it is. That's a sentence. Got to be. Make straight the way of the Lord. Make straight the way of the Lord. Great man is a sentence. That's his sentence. Make straight the way of the Lord. What's that mean anyway? That sounds like something you'd hear in a church. What's it mean, though? Well, here's what it means. It's a civil engineering term. It's a civil engineering word picture. It describes in the ancient world how at the arrival of the monarch or the king or the emperor, the king's processional doesn't use the existing roads because he's the king. A special road is built, the king's road, the king's highway. A special road built that is perfectly straight 
So the mountain peaks are leveled and the valleys are backfilled. The highway is flawlessly flat so that the king will proceed unobstructed. And of course, you never wait until the king arrives to begin building his highway. You've got to build a highway first, which is an act of faith, not knowing when the king is going to arrive, so that you're ready when the king finally does arrive. Make straight the way of the Lord. It's a word picture. It's a word picture, so it's got to mean something. So, so when John the Baptist says, make straight the way of the Lord, John is saying that a repentant heart is the means by which the king proceeds in an unobstructed way in and through your life. Repentance was John's message in make straight the way of the Lord. And, and repentance, repentance means to return to God beginning with your heart. Beginning with your heart. A change of heart. A change of attitude. A change of the way you think. A turning from self and a returning to God. And that was John's entire life. His voice, his dress, his habitation, his diet screamed protest against his culture. I mean, and John was offensive. He said, just because you're ethnically tied to our father Abraham doesn't make you a true child of God. Oh my goodness, that was highly offensive. If God wanted to create people, he could do it out of the very stones of the ground. My goodness, he offended them. And here's the thing, he offended them, and they came by the thousands to hear him preach, to hear him offend them with God's word. Luke chapter 3, verse 10, John says, Even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. And he wasn't talking about cutting down a Christmas tree either. He's talking about cutting down the dead, lifeless trees who profess godliness, but their lives don't reflect godliness. And then John baptized, highly offensive to the establishment and here's what I mean by that. So John was a Levite because his father was a Levite. But John was never reported to have set foot in the temple, you see. And in first century Judaism, converts to Judaism, uh, Gentile converts, uh, non-Hebrew uh, converts, they would be baptized as a part of their uh, uh, conversion but it was a self-baptism. It was a self-washing. They would immerse themselves. But John was a baptizer, John the baptizer, signaling his spiritual authority over those whom he baptized, apart from the temple. And our Advent reading spoke of a baptism for the forgiveness of sins. Wait a minute. I thought that the temple was the meeting place between God and his people where sins were forgiven. Do you see how radically dangerous John was perceived? That's why people sent a delegation. Thousands were coming, and he was out in the wilderness and in the desert along the Jordan River. This, this prophet who was more than a prophet, who by all appearances looked like someone on the margin, you see. And he spoke to the marginalized 
To some, he said, if you've got two shirts, give one away. To the tax collectors who came to him, you know, they wanted to repent. They said, what do we do? And John said, don't take more taxes than you're authorized to. To the Roman soldiers who came to him, what do we do? He said, don't use your military uniform to extort people. In other words, let the outward expressions for your life match your heart of repentance. Because God is about to do something new, something that will overthrow everything. Now then, get ready. Make straight the way of the Lord, John said. Repent. Return to God. See, his voice reminds us that God often uses people in our lives to tell the truth about ourselves, the unpleasant truth about ourselves. Do you have a John the Baptist in your life to do that? And I'm not talking about your spouse, okay? Because we won't listen to our spouses, will we? But do you have someone else in your life? Brothers, do you have another brother? Sisters, do you have another sister? Do you have a John the Baptist in your life who, who, unpleasant as it may be, will point out your growth areas? Huh. You know, I'm, over the years, I've just been so grateful for the brothers in Christ, in my life, who... Um, fiercely ask me accountability questions. Like, like, Randy, have you been with someone anywhere this past week that might be seen as compromising? Uh, Randy, have any of your financial dealings lacked integrity? Randy, have you exposed yourself to any sexually explicit material? Have you spent adequate time in Bible study and prayer? Have you given priority to your family? You know, have, have you fulfilled the mandates of your calling? And then after all those questions, they always finish up with the very last question. It's this. Have you just lied to me? Yeah. And, you know, I, I need these questions not because, well, that's the ministerial thing to do. No, I need these questions because Randy needs guardrails in his life. And Randy needs men of God in his life who will call him to make straight the way of the Lord. And when Randy doesn't have those guardrails, Randy wanders. Randy needs men of God in his life. Brothers, is there a man of God in your life? Sisters, is there a woman of God in your life? And those kinds of questions, I believe, really need to be man on man, women with women, you know. Make straight the way of the Lord. Repentance is not just a one-time exercise at the beginning of your faith journey. Repentance is a way of life, is a way of life. Make straight the way of the Lord. It's got to be his sins. And then all of a sudden, like John disappears from chapter one. You know, he points to Jesus. He fades from chapter one. You know, well, where'd he go? Whoa, whoa, where'd he go? And so, you know, I've got 
flip over to chapter 2. Oh, there's a wedding at Cana. Uh, chapter 2, Jesus cleanses the temple. Uh, chapter 3, there's Nicodemus. And then, oh, well, there we, we pick it up again in chapter 3, verse 22. John's disciples and Jesus' disciples are baptizing. And, and the crowds that had once followed John are now following Jesus, transferring their attention over to Jesus. And John's disciples, they just weren't sure what they thought about that. Hey, John, look, they're flocking over to Jesus. What is up with that? And, and John, well, he's okay with it. I mean, he says in John 3, 27, he says, look, hey, a person cannot receive one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You know, you yourselves bear me witness, and you heard what I said. I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. John says, I'm, I'm the best man at the wedding, and, but I'm not the groom. And people don't come to hear the best man. They come for the groom and the bride and the wedding. I'm the friend who stands and hears him and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And, and then, and I'll stop teasing you about these sentences. And then John speaks the very last line attributed to him in this gospel. And I truly do think it's the line that sums up the other two sentences. It's John's sentence. Great man is a sentence. And here's John's. John chapter 3, verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. My, my, my ego needs to decrease. My demands need to decrease. My guilt needs to decrease. My anxiety needs to decrease. My selfishness needs to de decrease. My impatience needs to decrease. My anger needs to decrease. My laziness needs to decrease. My self-righteousness needs to decrease. My lust needs to decrease. I must decrease. I must decrease. And you know why John could say he must increase, but I must decrease? It's because he knew that whatever Christ asked of him would be small compared to what Christ was going to give him. He knew, Lord, whatever sacrifice you ask of me would be nothing compared to the glory that will be mine. Whatever you decide is right for me will be consummately wise and utterly practical and perfectly right. And John is not so foolish as to think, well, how can I know what's right for me and wrong for me before I know whether he's the creator of the universe and the king of my life? Listen, if Jesus is the king of your life, then you are not who you think you are. You are who he says you are. And if he's not the king of your life, then he can't help you. So he must increase, and I must decrease. And for me to decrease, you know, the only way that that really and truly happens, and it's, it's really the only way that, that um, you know, true repentance gets expressed, it, um, is for me to be captivated by the beauty and glory and splendor of the king. So in order to overcome the darkness of my own self-obsession, I need the light of Christ's glory. I need to be obsessed with Him. I, I need to be captured by a, a more splendid vision. 
He must increase. His love must increase. His joy must increase. His kindness must increase. His grace must increase. He must increase. I must decrease. That's John's sentence. What's your sentence? What one, what one sentence might best summarize your life? You know? I think this could be ours. Individually and corporately as a church. And, and it's, you know, it's one thing to say it and sing it. It's another thing to have to give your life for it. You know, to be treated like your decrease. <laughs> and that's what happened to John. That's how he died. Some of you know about his death. John the Baptist. John the Baptist, <laughs> he offended many with the truth of God's word. And he particularly offended King Herod. Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod put him in jail. But Herod was wishy-washy. He was a coward. He put John in jail, but he knew that John was right, and he knew that the people flocked around John. And so Herod was kind of conflicted. But Herod's wicked wife, Herodias, so there's Herod and Herodias, and I mean, they were just a wicked couple. And she absolutely hated John. And then, you know, Herod and Herodias made Frank and Claire Underwood look like June and Ward Cleaver. I mean, they were just an awful, awful, evil couple. And, and so on Herod's birthday, Herodias threw a birthday bash. And Herod was, was so wicked. Herod had his eye on Herodias' teenage daughter. And Herodias knew this. And she hated John. So she had her teenage daughter dance for Herod at this big party where all of the nobility were there. And after she danced for him, this provocative dance in front of everyone, Herod said, I'll give you anything you want. And her mom whispered in her ear and she said, Bring me the head of the Baptist on a platter right now. And Herod, oh, see. But he couldn't take it back. You know why? Because he loved the praise of people more than he loved the glory of God. And that's how this great man of God, this Elijah-like figure who was so humble he wouldn't even identify himself with Elijah, even though Jesus later did. That's how it ended for him. <laughs> how absurd. I mean, John's in prison. Can you imagine? John's in prison, and then he hears footsteps, and the door opens, and the guard says, on your knees, I need your head. Well, why? Because a teenage girl danced, and she asked for your head. How pathetic is that? I mean, John the Baptist was probably kneeling there about to die, you know, thinking, really, Lord? Really, I'm going out like this, beheaded because a middle school girl and her dancing? And, of course, the real reason why John was killed, the real reason why he'd even been imprisoned in the first place was because Herod loved darkness. And if you love darkness, you will never see light. So what do you love? 
And later many would follow in John's steps, of whom it is said in Revelation chapter 12, 11. And many do today. They triumphed over Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Oh, God, you must increase, I must decrease. Help me, help me to not love my life so much so as to shrink from death. You must increase, I must decrease. And, and when people told Jesus of John's execution, you know what Jesus said? Jesus called John the greatest person ever born. Ever born, he did. And then he said something else right after that, which involves you and me. He said, there's no one who's been born of women greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So what's your sentence? Is John's sentence at work in your life, in our, in our life, in our marriages, in our relationships? And are we willing to own that sentence even if others think us as crazy as camel hair? He must increase. I must decrease. What's your sentence? That's question number one. I told you I was going to tell you question number two, and I am. I'm going to tell you that question, and then I'm going to pray. Question number one, what's your sentence? He must increase, I must decrease. Question number two is this. By the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ, before you go to bed tonight and lay your head on the pillow, by the power of the Holy Spirit of Christ, did I make just a little bit of progress today over yesterday? May it be so, Lord. Because it can only be by your power and your strength and your wooing and your longing in our hearts that we can turn from the addiction of self-importance to see the light and beauty and glory and grace of Jesus. Do your business, Lord, in our hearts. Change us. I can't even change myself. I need you to change me. So that having a new heart, a heart of flesh to replace the heart of stone, I will, Lord, delight in you. for your glory and the good of your people. And God's people said, amen.